Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Welcome to CBS Audio's Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Phil Briggs. I'm a Navy veteran, and every week I get a chance to look at the issues of the day through the eyes of my fellow military vets. Now, sometimes we get a military veteran expert in here to talk about the issues in the news, and other times we'll talk about the issues that uniquely affect veterans. But I tell you, every episode will bring you fascinating guests with incredible stories to share. My goal every week is simple, bring you something informative and something that will inspire the hell out of you. This is the news and stories about the veteran lifestyle. This is Eye on Veterans. Now this hour, we're going to hear an episode of the podcast Vet Story that I produced back in 2018. It's an unusual holiday story, if you will, because it's about a bar. A bar that was born on Christmas Eve and the crazy story of a British paratrooper who founded the world's most dangerous bar in the middle of a combat zone, the Baghdad Country Club. And so we'd all talk about having, you know, something. Wouldn't it be great if we could open a bar or something like that would get a proper drink? And he, you know, he said, look, I'd love to, um, James, but the problem is I can't get into where you can get into. I can only get it so far. You know, I'll, I'll just effectively front you the money until you sell it. Dude, we, we had anything from, from Johnny Walker Blue Label, we had the Jack Daniels, we had Jim Beam, we had absolute vodka, Smirnoff vodka in all sorts of flavors. You know, it was, it was jam-packed. I mean, we were passing beer over people's heads. It was kind of one of those kind of crazy scenes. And I certainly always felt incredibly nervous. So I used to carry like an M4 and a, a Glock, and the M4 was like tucked beneath my seat, and the, M, uh, the Glock was like under my leg as I was driving. You know, I personally took the choice that I'm not going to live my life hiding away in a bunker somewhere. And the club motto was always been, it takes real balls to play here. Welcome to Vet Story. I'm your host, Phil Briggs, and today we're going to meet the guy who founded the Baghdad Country Club. My, my name is James Thorne, and I like to call myself Sir, but I'm not knighted in any way. 
Um, <laughs> no, I just call myself James. James Thornett. James was a bootlegger, a bar owner, but not just any bar. A bar that was built in Baghdad and existed during some of the bloodiest times of that city's history. But before we skip ahead to our tale of gin, whiskey, bourbon, and beer in the middle of Baghdad, tell me about your military service. Uh, I was an officer in the Paras, the British Parachute Regiment. Uh, so we uh, we crossed the border with two mess um, down in from Kuwait into southern Iraq uh, during uh, the first sort of operation, which we call Talik One, um, in 2003. And then I had done sort of eight or nine years by that stage in the British military, and I was getting to a rank whereby it was going to be a desk job, and that really wasn't what I signed up to do. Uh, so I left, and a friend of mine just uh, happened to have a contracting company that won the contract for the secure in the green zone. So he called me up and said, would I come and run and set up security for the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad? So I did that for six months to a year or whatever it was. And then and then that's when um, the the kind of bootlegging started after that by by accident to be perfectly honest and then to mark the time and kind of era you were there i want to say early 2000s that would have been in an era we kind of define in the american experience as as the surge era right i mean that was that was kicking indoors that was really taking the city door to door right uh yeah i mean when i was when I was running the embassy, uh, it was the end of 2003 coming into 2004. I guess it was kind of uh, spring to summer, to April-ish 2004 when the surge really started to kick in, when things started to go slightly sideways and then from sideways to really bad. You know, initially it wasn't like that. You know, you could go downtown in Baghdad without too much trouble. Um, you know, we used to go down and have uh, have meals out by the, the Tigris there um, in 2003. Um, but then in 2004, that all stopped pretty quickly. Um, and that's when you were getting the Westerners that were kidnapped and beheaded. Then we had the Blackwater incident, you know, in Fallujah. Um, the, it was becoming impossible almost to live outside the green zone. Uh, and even within the green zone, um, you know, you were getting constantly rocketed and mortared. And there were some of the suicide attacks at checkpoints and then sort of driving up and down the roads. That was very, um, that was very difficult at the time. So during the surge in 2004, 2005 era, because there was a lot of suicide bombings, vehicle-borne IED bombings, that kind of thing, sniper attacks. So yeah, it, it was in the surge period. Wow. And the only reason I bring it up is because I think contextually it kind of lays into the next part of this story, which is what makes you kind of half crazy. I mean, during this tumultuous time. You are a booze bootlegger and a bar owner in arguably one of the most dangerous places in the world. Uh, uh, well, I'm, you know, it, it's not obviously what I set out to do. I didn't enter Baghdad thinking I, I'm going to bootleg a ton of liquor and, uh, and open this bar. Right. But like anything in these kind of environments, things are pretty fluid and, you know, you roll with the punches and... Uh, and it was, it, like I say, it was, it was really an accident that this happened. And... and you know, you, you could get a drink in Baghdad, just about. I mean, it wasn't fabulous by any stretch of the imagination, and the wine was terrible, but there were some guys, some Christian guys, still selling liquor from the back of their house, uh, and it was very, very ad hoc. Okay. Um, so, there, you know, there, there was no bar like you and I would understand as a bar. Um, there were a couple of cafes in the green zone um, that were 
you know, almost tent-like with plastic furniture. Um, that, you know, you could get a beer or something like that. But there, there was nothing that, that you and I would like to say would, would associate with, with being a bar. And that, so we'd always talked about having, you know, something. Wouldn't it be great if we could open a bar or something like that? We'd get a proper drink or whatever. You know? And then I was coming, I was flying in from Dubai into Baghdad. And the transport system, the, the planes um, were, were charter planes. And they, uh, they weren't very reliable. For the planes to get cancelled at pretty short notice. So we'd been kicking around the airport for like three days. And this guy came over to talk to me, this, this Iraqi guy. And anyway, we ended up chatting. Uh, he was a really nice guy and exchanging sort of what we did to a degree after a while. And he, he turned out to be the owner of the duty-free rights in Iraq. Hmm. And so, you know, that was pretty interesting in itself. I don't often meet somebody that owns the duty-free rights to a country. Now, it was right about here in our discussion that I was questioning how he actually knew this guy had the rights. I mean, uh, it's not exactly the most stable time in that country's history. When you, when you say he was allowed to trade, let's put this in perspective. There were, there were no rules as such in, in Iraq at that time because there was virtually no government. So some people will tell you alcohol was illegal. Other people will tell you it wasn't. There was actually no sort of you know, set guideline as to what was legal and what wasn't legal. So we had to start, you know, we, we kept it under the table as much as we could. Sure. But, you know, had there not, had there been a government, he has a piece of paper from a government at some stage saying that he owns the rights to the duty free in the country. Huh. As and when he's allowed to trade that. So in kind of a lawless land, he still had some piece of paper with some sort of legitimacy. I, yeah, I kind of asked him how he got that and he was like, oh, it's a long story. But basically, he used to trade sort of duty free before the war. And he brought a, a, a huge shipment of cigarettes into Baghdad, which the government still owed him for. So he basically camped out at one of the military bases until he eventually got hold of somebody um, who basically said, well, look, we can't pay you for your consignment, but I can give you the duty free rights to Iraq. And that's how he got them. <laughs> nice. Anyway, I'm not going to question the guy. So I, you know, I say, well, get some, uh, get some decent liquor and get some decent wine down here. And he, you know, he said, look, I'd love to, um, James, but the problem is I can't get into where you can get into. I can only get it so far. You know, it's pointless. I need a business partner to do it. Do you want to, you know, would you partner up with me and do this? So I was like, yeah, sure. And, and then we took off, but we took off at five at, at night and Baghdad didn't have landing or runway lights at the time. And, you know, no, no commercial planes could land at night on, on, in Baghdad. So I kind of knew we weren't going to Baghdad. So, and I was the only Westerner on the flight as such. And my security team were waiting in Baghdad for me. So I said to the air hostess, look, you know, look around the plane, look at me. You can see the problem I've got here. And then I know we're not going to Baghdad. So do you want to tell me where we're going? And it ended up being Erbil in the north of Iraq, sort of in the Kurdish controlled region. All right. So pause real quick. And a quick search reveals that Erbil is the capital city of the Kurdistan region in Iraq. And while human settlement dates back in Erbil to 5000 B.C., it's the history around 2004 that's kind of scary. There was a parallel bomb attack during celebrations in town, killing 109 people. Officially, the Erbil International Airport didn't even open until 2005. And so there James is, sitting on a plane where he's the only Westerner, surrounded by Iraqis, descending and landing in the war-ravaged territory of northern Iraq. And we'll continue the story of the Baghdad Country Club right after this. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. 
I'm Phil Briggs, a proud Navy veteran and a reporter for ConnectingVets.com. Now we're listening to the podcast Vet Story and the episode entitled The Baghdad Country Club. And we'll join back in where British paratrooper veteran and James Bond-like booze bootlegger James Thornett had just landed in northern Iraq and tried to negotiate buying a shipment of wine and liquor and then transport it back to Baghdad so the soldiers and contractors there could have, as he put it, a proper drink. It was a mission with life and death consequences and one that has a unique tie-in to Christmas Eve. Uh, if you bust the plane and, and he took me to a hotel, and, you know, a nice hotel, and said, look, you go upstairs, have a drink. I'll sort the bill out. Uh, you know, now the president knows I'm in town. I'll kind of sort of see him in the morning, but we'll get you to Baghdad. We'll, we'll chat later. So, yeah, he was exceptionally hospitable to me. He did that in the morning, got me to Baghdad, and, you know, that, that was that. For, I don't know, a couple of weeks, three weeks, maybe. Uh, and then out of the blue, he just kind of called me up and said, um, are you still interested in what we discussed? Which, which I said, yeah, I mean, absolutely, but I don't know how this is going to work. I mean, how do you want to do this? And he said, look, I'll bring this stuff down, these 40 foot containers full of liquor, you know, full of wine. I'll get them into Baghdad, sort of compound, his compound at the edge of Baghdad. You know, you come up, we'll, we'll exchange the containers, you take the containers down. You know, you sell your stuff in the green zone and I'll sell my stuff at the airport. And as long as we agree not to compete on price, you know, I'll, I'll just effectively front you the money until you sell it. <laughs> so, what, I mean, a, what an incredible what guy, gift. I yeah, mean, exactly, exactly. So I was like, are you sure? Because you don't really know me. And uh, that's an awful lot of money you're risking. And he was like, yeah, listen, I trust you. You know, what are you going to do? All right, I mean, I guess he's got a point, even though his point is scary as hell. Um, how did he get his hands on the liquor? Yeah, he had a contract with Diageo, one of the biggest alcohol supplies in the world. Oh, indeed. Um, I recognize the name. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this stuff would come from wherever, all over, congregate in Turkey on the border there, get driven through the border, you know, to uh, into northern Iraq and then down towards Baghdad. Wow. So so these were actual, these weren't just bootlegged versions of homemade vodka in a mason jar. No, no, no. These no, were no, actual no, was, brands of... Genuine. The vast majority of it was liquor and wine because obviously that was the high-priced items. And it was easier to transport that because obviously the size of cases of beer. Mm-hmm. Um, you could still buy beer downtown in Baghdad if you knew the right guys. There were some warehouses that still had beer. The problem was that they were they were owned, the vast majority of them were owned by the Christians, Christian Iraqis, because the militias were becoming so strong in Baghdad, particularly at the time, certainly around Sardis City and that kind of area. Uh, a lot of the guys that were, you know, had been alcohol sort of distributors were being killed. So they were all kind of closing down. There was, you know, two or three of them left. All right, let's just pause and get our head around this for one second. Everybody else in the liquor game is getting killed. Distributors were being killed. And James decides to get a shipment of high-end, high-priced brand-name liquors and get into the bootlegging game. And we'd smuggle it through from wherever he was into the club. Mm. This guy has huge balls, right? Dude, we, we had we had what? So anything from, from Johnny Walker Blue Label, we had green, we had uh, gold, then obviously your blacks and your reds, we had the Jack Daniels, we had Jim Beam, we had absolute vodka, Smirnoff vodka in all sorts of flavors. Um, any kind of top, I would say top shelf, any kind of recognizable shelf liquor we would have within reach. Bear in mind, 
we only have 40 foot containers to move this stuff in and we have to sort of carry you know 13 14 different brands of wine in that as well so right right we, we kept to the main brands well it was very good stuff to be perfectly honest tip of the cap to you for making this all happen but now um yeah let's pick back up where i interrupted you pardon me um we've now rendezvoused we've picked up our lot of booze our 40 foot container you've headed back to the green zone now talk to me about what happens next in this story which inevitably ends with you guys basically running a bar well the, the first load came in on this 40 foot container we we had a we had a, a a big rig lined up to take it from the airport down to the green zone which there's a main road for those that obviously don't know about that there's a main road like a freeway that ran between the green zone and the airport which was you know a safe area within reason as well and it wasn't particularly long i mean it's probably I know, 10 miles maybe give or take probably took me 15 minutes but the trouble was, it, it was, at the time, it was a really, really dangerous road because, like I say, that's where you know, a lot of the military convoys would drive up, so that's where a lot of the insurgents were trying to hit. Anybody connected with, you know, the the, the war efforts, um, so there was a lot of suicide bombs, a lot of IEDs, a lot of vehicle-borne IEDs, sniper attacks. That road was, it, it, was a, it was a hairy road, to say the least, at the time. To demonstrate just how hairy of a road it is, Google search... Route Irish. It's a nickname I read for the highway that runs between Baghdad Airport and the military fortress that is the Green Zone. There you'll find countless videos posted from about 2003 through 2005. They show charred and wrecked vehicles that met their violent end along the stretch of that dusty highway. Watching just a few seconds of these videos, you can feel the anxiety and adrenaline they must have felt. The garbage-strewn median, the holes blasted in the sides of the road, the suspicion of anyone visible or any car visible, the overpass ramps, the dangerous and ominous-looking concrete intersections, watching the heavily armed vehicles pass by, and knowing that during this time there were attacks every day. It makes you wonder how anyone made it through. And gives me a real appreciation for every veteran I meet that did. The guy that we had driving it didn't, it turned out, didn't have the right badge because they changed it over that day. He was an Iraqi guy. So we ended up driving the rig down from the airport into the checkpoint 12, which was the one thing, you know, closest to uh, the airport road. But checkpoint 12 couldn't take 40 foot containers because they didn't have the scanning equipment. So then we had to kind of back this big rig up, which neither of us knew how to drive. Um, <laughs> No. And then took it through the back streets of Baghdad, which are narrow to say the least. And the traffic there is, you know, you think traffic is bad in D.C. at rush hour. I mean, it's nothing compared to Baghdad with no traffic lights and no policemen guiding anything. And it's just chaos. Uh, so we eventually got it around to checkpoint 18 and then and they got a scanning machine there. So I went through and the, the, you know, the other guys got the container through and Ahmed, my guy at the airport, said, look, it's going to be 50. 50 tons, you need a 50 ton crane to lift this. And there aren't any 50 ton cranes in the green zone, so we used two 40 foot, sorry, two 20 ton cranes, which, you know, obviously the mass doesn't work out on that. So we've got these two cranes trying to balance this container out, and it's just a, a bit of a lower and harder sketch trying to put this thing on the ground. But by, by hook or by truck, we got it on the ground, and, and that's when the sort of sales started Christmas, Christmas Eve, really. No way, um, you're unloading a shipping container with two kind of ad hoc cranes, not even strong enough to do this, and this is all going down Christmas Eve? 
it's you know, time for a Christmas miracle, right? Chris, Jesus would be so happy. That is. I'm not getting involved in that. I don't know about that. I can't vouch for him, but I was happy. <laughs> a Christmas miracle. I love it. Okay, go on. Uh, so, so you know, before this was all, you know, whilst this was going on, I was, I was saying to another a friend of mine that I knew, and I said, like, this is what I've got. I kind of need somewhere to sell this stuff from. I'm not quite sure what to do with it. So we ended up kind of renting this, I don't know, the closest thing to a shop, but, it, you know, it's not like a shop you and I understand as a shop. It was a kind of space that actually had a tile floor and a little bit of air conditioning, which was like 30 feet by 30 feet vast. So we just threw it all in wholesale, effectively in boxes, and uh, we opened up sort of, I think, the day after Christmas for the sales. And then, um, and then you know, because it's quite a, well, it's obviously a very small community in the Greenville, um, not much is kept a secret. Um, you know, people would poke their head in and find out what was going on, and then the jungle drum started. And, you know, before you know it, you've got a ton of people coming in to, to buy your merchandise. And that lasted for about, this was sort of early 2004, that lasted for about six months, and it was a place that was, it was the only thing, the closest thing to a sort of Western bar. And then, you know, when I got this liquor, I was talking to, you know, some of these guys, and I was like, look, I really want to start the Baghdad Country Club again, but I, I want to start it properly. I, you know, we're going to have it every night. It's going to be as good a bar as we would find in, in America. It's going to have proper food, you know, food that you and I want to eat, you know, as a change. I want a beautiful garden. I want it very much like sort of Ritter Casablanca's cafe. Can I just pause right there? When I told my editors that I was going to talk to you about this story, that's exactly what we thought of. Casablanca, Humphrey Bogart. He's looking at you, kid. You know, we're... <laughs> but would he be able to actually pull it off in a dry country, in a war zone? We'll find out when CBS Eye on Veterans returns. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Phil Briggs, a Navy vet and a reporter for ConnectingVets.com. We'll continue listening to the podcast Vet Story and the episode entitled The Baghdad Country Club, where British paratrooper veteran James Thornett was crazy enough to smuggle wine, liquor, and beer into Baghdad during the height of the Iraq War. And he drove his first secret shipment into the Green Zone on Christmas Eve. Now, within months, he would go on to create one of the most unique places in the history of bars and one of the most dangerous bars in the world. And we'll present it in a way that, that is as good as, it, as we can do it so you feel as comfortable as you can feel. And perhaps, you know, for that short period of time you're in this club, you get away from the troubles of the war for a little bit. But it also acted as a very important area because it was one of the few clubs, well, it was the only club for a start, but it was one of the few places, I was going to say, where Anybody, as long as you had a badge to be in the Green Zone, could come in. So you'd get, you know, minister, you know, Iraqi ministers in there sitting next to American diplomats, sitting next to, you know, uh, an NGO or the UN or a contractor or a military guy, you know, depending on which military you're from. As James continued to tell this story, you could see it all kind of unfolding in front of you. And even more interesting, to think of the international diplomacy that may have occurred right there at the bar. Yeah, I mean, a lot of problems get solved over alcohol, don't they? In certain ways. A lot of things get fixed. <laughs> Please, I, I only know? wish our governments could actually do so, you know? Yeah, so so anyway, we started selling this stuff wholesale, uh, and then, you know, it went crazy. Crazy, crazy. And the people I was renting the shops from, 
this was kind of maybe six months later, perhaps a little more. Uh, they were, they'd lost their contract or whatever. They were leaving country, so they didn't have their villa anymore. This shop was attached to. So there was a villa around the corner um, of where we were in the green zone. This beautiful corner villa. And, you know, to put this in perspective a little bit, for obviously the people that haven't been there, the, the green zone was where the, 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 you know, Saddam had his government. That's where his palaces were. And, you know, there were some really big, nice old houses in there. But they were all, uh, you know, dilapidated now. And the green zone was becoming incredibly packed because, like I say, living outside in the red zone was becoming increasingly difficult and dangerous. So any kind of Westerner with a contract for military, they were, we were all packed in there. So the price of the villa was, I don't know, for maybe like a 3,000 square foot villa was probably $200,000 rent for the year. Whoa. So, you know, but I needed to move. So we went in with, you know, $200,000 in cash and spoke to the owner and said, look, you know, we want it. And he's like, okay. And gave me the keys and walked out literally there and then. And there was like no permitting. There was no like, you know, how we would do this in England or in America where you'd need to present some business plan and you'd have to have plumbing certification and a contractor come out. No, I mean, we we were told him what we wanted to do. And he was like, yeah, okay. I mean, as long as when you finish, you turn it back into what it was. He's fine with it. But Chances of seeing him again, to be perfectly honest, the 200,000 he's probably left to go somewhere else. Right. Um, and, you know, some guys were making a fortune, absolute fortune, if they owned a house in the green zone. Um, you know, and that was, wasn't was even the most expensive house. I mean, I've heard of people paying $400,000 a month for three a year for, um, for renting houses. Wow. Um, so... Age actually was my fix-it guy. You know, he got his crews in. I said, right, we need a kitchen. We need, I want proper bathrooms because the other thing was bathrooms in Baghdad were not fantastic to say the least. Uh, I said, I want some proper bathrooms. I want a separate female bathroom and I want a male bathroom. And, you know, I want uh, a marble bar and I want wood paneling and I want a garden. I want this beautiful garden and this, you know, there was this beautiful kind of corner plot, but it was all, you know, literally uh, just dirt. So he got sod the turf in and trees and lights and, you know, and, you know, it took about five months, I think, with another, I don't know, 250, 300,000 bucks put into it. But by the end of it, we had this thing, you know, we had this beautiful place. I built a kind of, uh, <laughs> back to sort of Casablanca, I built this kind of bedroom and, uh, and office above the entire club so I could live above the club. And- All right, wait, stop. Guy's got the only bar in a war zone. It's like a little piece of Casablanca paradise with a garden and a marble bar. And he's got a bedroom above it? Now, I'm just saying, I think he was probably at some point in his life the happiest bachelor in the world. (laughs) All right. But I digress. Go on. Um, And then it was, I can't remember the exact date. I think it was September sometime, but I could be wrong. Um, some guy, it was Thursday afternoon and we were, you know, we were as busy as normal on, on a beautiful kind of you know, five o'clock Thursday night type thing on, on the start of the weekend. Everybody's in a good mood. And this guy that I know, you know, he knew what I was doing. And then and he said, look, James, can I knit next door and just have a look at the, uh, the club and see how you're doing? So I was like, yeah, yeah, okay. Come on, let's go next door. So we went next door and he said, do you mind if I have a beer? I'm, you know, the first one to have a beer. I was like, yeah, come on, why not? So we had a beer and he called a couple of his friends that were next door and they came in and they had a beer. And I mean, I didn't know, you know, before you know it, there's like 20 people in there. And then by seven o'clock, there was like 400 people in there. And we weren't even, you know, we weren't even set up to open. We, I didn't even know the price of anything. Um, and there was like a bunch of my friends kicking around as well from, you know, people I served with uh, in, in the forces that were contracted out there. I was like, look, guys, you know, Rich and Simon and some other guys, like, guys, get yourself behind the bar. And they're like, well, what are we charging? And I was like, I don't know, just make it up. 
Yes, I don't really care right now. And you know, we were passing. You know, it was it was jam packed. I mean, we were passing beer over people's heads. It was kind of one of those kind of crazy scenes and chill beer in bathtubs and stuff because we just couldn't cool it fast enough. And you know, I think by like sort of you know, eight o'clock, nine o'clock, we ran out of beer. But it, you know, it was a great night. We went on till two in the morning till eventually we literally ran out of virtually everything. Uh, and I was like, okay, we're shattered. We're closed, guys. Let's let's get out of here. Um, and that was kind of the opening of the club. Really, it was, it was again not planned in any way as all of this seems to be uh, for some reason. But it turned into this kind of, you know, pretty cool, well, really cool club, I guess, in, in a certain way. Now we get in the podcast right here with the impromptu opening of the Baghdad Country Club. And on its first night, it sold its entire inventory of beer and almost every drop of liquor they owned. I mean, this story blows away my other favorite bar movie, and that's Tom Cruise in Cocktail. Would this become a movie? I'll wait. We'll get to that in a minute. Given what we were doing and what we had to work with and, you know, the risks we were taking to do that because, you know, bootlegging liquor down the down the, the route Irish, as the airport road was called. You know, if you got caught by the militias or something or through the back streets of Baghdad, you got caught by the militias, you, you didn't get a jail fine. You know, you got executed by these guys. Yeah, that was my question is, were you ever scared of the authorities of whether it was the Baghdad police? I assume that they were our allies, but at, there could have been factions that hated us for being Westerners. Or were you ever uh, afraid that like uh, uh, Al Qaeda members or, uh, you know, what became ISIS members? Um, were you ever afraid of those guys just rolling in kind of nondescript? And then all of a sudden, you know, it turns to chaos and anarchy and sadly tragedy. Uh, I mean, on the on the on the liquor runs themselves, I was. I mean, again, unless you've done it, you don't really understand what route Irish is like. But as soon as you leave the green zone, you, you go hot with your weapons. I used to carry like an M4 and a, a Glock, and the M4 was like tucked beneath my seat, and the M, uh, the Glock was like under my under my sort of leg as I was driving. And I used to wear body armor, obviously, but under like overalls, and I used to have some you know grenades and some smoke uh, grenades sort of on my chest and stuff. But yeah, I, I used to roll kind of nondescript, low profile, as, uh, as we call it, to try and blend in as best I could. So, yeah, I mean, you, you uh, I certainly always felt incredibly nervous getting out of the green zone and hidden route Irish. But I used to try and do it first thing in the morning before any traffic started in there, before the kind of big military convoy started going up and down. I think, I, wasn't, I mean, firstly, let me just make this clear. The, the chief of police used to live next door to me for a run. And he was a nice guy. And he was introduced by, uh, to me by a friend and, you know, said, flat out ask the guy. I said, look, this is what I'm planning on doing. Do you have any objections? Is there a law against this or anything? He's like, look, you know, James, as long as I can drink there, I don't mind. And he was joking. He just meant, you know, there's basically no law, James. Nobody's going to pull you up for this. On the Iraqi side anyway. So I was like, sweet. Okay, done. Um, so basically, you know, just the liquor runs were the ones that really raised your blood pressure. Inside the green zone, you felt relatively safe. I mean, as safe as anybody feels in that kind of environment. I mean, let's, again, put this in perspective. You, you were being sort of mortared and rocketed quite regularly. But that's, you know, in the, in the lap of the gods as to where that lands kind of thing. So, you know, we'd, we'd often run to take cover, like everybody in the green zone where the sirens would go off, you'd run, or you'd hear, the, you'd hear the launch anyway. And so you knew something was inbound. Sirens would go off, you'd run for hard cover. We were in a big sort of concrete building anyway, but you obviously want to get away from glass. So, you know, we'd all run inside for a bit, and then, there's a bit of nervous energy and then it lands and you're like, okay, and then you go and have a look where it landed and make sure everything was okay. And, you know, that was one of the threats. The other threat is obviously, you know, somebody coming in as a suicide bomb or whatever. 
I mean, yeah, you're, you're conscious of it, but it's like, yeah, it's like anything. You can't live your life being scared of everything. You know, I personally took a choice that I'm not going to live my life hiding away in a bunker somewhere forever. You just can't. That's not healthy. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Phil Briggs for ConnectingVets.com and a proud Navy veteran. Now we've been talking to British paratrooper veteran James Thornett. James is a British combat vet turned booze bootlegger, and he's telling the story of the Baghdad Country Club, a bar whose roots came from the very first shipment of liquor, which arrived on Christmas Eve. But like the holiday season, it would eventually come to an end. The, the, the climate in Baghdad generally was changing uh, over, you know, the times we, we were there. Like, we use the term lawless, but, and I, I, I use that sort of tongue-in-cheek in a way. I, you know, you couldn't go around shooting people, clearly. Sure. But, you know, for, 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 if you were being a little bit cheeky, running, a, you know, bootlegging a bit of alcohol here, there's bigger things in the world to, to worry about. Uh, and, you know, generally speaking, every Westerner saw this as a favor. And even a lot of the Iraqis saw this as a favor. There were some of the militias and some of the insurgencies that clearly would have killed us if they'd have caught us um, doing this. Um, but, you know, it's not like we were breaking the law in inverted commas by doing this. It was just the place wasn't really set up for laws in that way. But just the feel of the green zone was changing. It was becoming a lot more regimented. They wanted to make it a much more like a military, a huge military base, effectively. You know, try to impose some regulations in the green zone. Started to be a bit more aggressive about how they did that. You know, there were like parking tickets were being issued and speeding fines and actually like, guys, I mean, we're, we're, we're at war here. Surely we've got better things to do than stop people for speeding. But okay, I get, you know, there has to be some, there has to be some authority somewhere. And then generators that were outside were being told that we had to move them inside and trash couldn't be left outside. But in mind, Baghdad was just full of trash. Because um, there was nowhere to put it, so, you know. So you were getting sort of a lot of aggravation for very minor things. And I don't, you know, to be honest, I don't really know what happened in the end as to why it was closed down. I mean, like anything, uh, you know, a couple of people were, for whatever reason, not particularly happy about the bar being there. And then, you know, I wasn't actually in country at the time when it got closed down. Um, I, I was in Amman in, in Jordan. Um, but my, my bar manager called me up and said, look, you know, boss, we, we've just been shut down. The Westerners that had working for me, basically, you've got 24 hours to get out of the country because their green zone rights were being revoked. So I got them out of the country, and then I ended up smuggling myself back into Baghdad. I said, I always joked, and I'm one of the few guys that actually had to smuggle himself into the country. Um, <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. That's That's... You know, all my life was there in the bar. I mean, all my money was there in the bar, all my stock was there in the bar, and we'd, we'd just gone heavy on stock because it was, you know, I think it was just like beginning of Ramadan, so we couldn't transport alcohol during Ramadan, so we had to buy like 30 days' worth of supplies for that, which is huge amounts of booze. Right. Huge amounts. Um, so that was all there, and all my clothes were there, and all my personal you know, sort of effects were there, so I had to kind of come in and try and get some of that out. So I managed to get a little bit of it out, but, you know, I couldn't get in the club to move the alcohol or get the cash out or anything like that. Now, let's just think about that for a second. The Baghdad Country Club's era inside the green zone is coming to an end. And his life's work is locked up inside of a building he can't even get to. What? All his money? All his booze? You gotta be pissed off about that. I mean, when people say to me, you know, uh, were, you, were you mad that it got closed down? And I start saying, you know, at the time I probably was. But in hindsight, I think it's probably the best thing that could have happened because 
the greens and all of Iraq was going to change at that stage. And it was, I could feel it coming anyway. And you know, some of the guys that I was working with weren't, you know, they couldn't really see it. So they were, let's buy some TVs, let's buy ovens, let's, you know, buy pizza ovens, let's do this. I was like, you know what, guys, no more spending on CapEx. Something's going to change here. I just, I'm feeling it. And if it wasn't, you know, for being shut down by these, you know, sort of police in the green zone, it was going to be the Iraqis at some stage because when the elections happened again, or, you know, when the government that was elected in 2005 started to get some strength within itself, they were starting to flex their muscles a lot more. And it was, it was a Shia government that came in that were very sort of anti-alcohol. Mm. Um, so they, they were going to start to ban alcohol anyway from the green zone. And much as I don't mind doing a bit of bootlegging here and there, I didn't want to do it completely speaky. I, I would not have gone away with it. I mean, in the bottom line. Um, and you certainly wouldn't have so, wanted to spend, you know, a better part of your life in some kind of Iraqi prison either, you know, with the new administration well, no, coming in there. No, that's, that, that wasn't on my list of things to do that year. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm blessed, you know, these were my friends. I, I didn't want to offend anybody particularly. I, that's no, right, right. what I was about doing. I mean, uh, and it was, it had run its course. While the Baghdad Country Club is now just a mere legend in the history of bars, as James Thornett explained, its spirit lives on. Just a few years ago, his story was covered by a high-end journalist with Atlantic Magazine. And that's where the story would eventually begin circulating among some pretty big names in Hollywood. Josh was doing a lot of uh, promo stuff during the Oscars with Ben Affleck because obviously Argo won um, some awards. And I, I'm told that he was talking with Ben Affleck and Robert Downey Jr., and they were asking what, I, what he'd been writing and he told them about me. And so Robert Downey Jr. apparently sort of said, I want to buy the rights to that story and I want to make it through my production team. So that was all going on. And Robert Downey Jr. was being involved. So then I got, you know, uh, a sort of script writer got involved from the Downey Jr. Team Downey side. And so we were, we'd been busy kind of writing that and that's kind of sidebar. So it's always been kind of bubbling over in the background. The country club as a whole, it's never kind of died as such. And then... Kind of four, I don't know, probably six months ago, uh, a friend of mine was setting up a charity. So I, you know, got a bunch of golf balls printed up and a bunch of like little mason shot glasses to represent the bootlegging days. Again, sort of take a shot for a hero. Um, you know, caps, golf umbrellas, just general apparel that to, to kind of start to raise some money, you know, for these guys. And so I just reached out to the Iraq and Afghan veterans of America, just called it, called them and said, look, this is what we want to do. This is how we want to help. And told him the story. He said, look, I love it. I love it. Let's, let's definitely work together. We've had a couple of kind of promo fundraising nights. We'll have a lot more of those. We're going to obviously move into like the golfing tournament side of things to support the golf sports and things like that. But, you know, anybody that, that wants to sort of host an event because we generate a lot of interest. So if you're a bar, slow between three and six o'clock on a Saturday. We bring a bunch of people down. We have an event down there. We raise money as part of that. The bar makes money because more people drink in the bar. Everybody kind of wins. Everybody has a good time. So it sounds to me like every bar can now sort of adopt for a few hours the feeling, the esprit de corps that was the Baghdad Country Club. And, uh, you know, they can yeah, generate interest based on your theme and you can travel your theme all over the place. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's almost like a pop-up thing, I guess, for the bars. Right on. So, is there going to be, is there going to be a bar again? Hopefully, at some stage in the not too distant future, when the bandwidth opens up a little bit, right, um, right, and we find the right place with the right partners to do it with as well. Oh. Um, because I, I don't really want to be stood behind, you know, running a bar. 
uh, again at my time of life um, <laughs> is perfectly feasible that, that would be rounding the circle as it were to, uh, to, to complete where we sort of started from um, it's strange how these things kind of come around it's the coolest booze-related story to come out of war that I've had the privilege to record. So, well, just no, thank you for uh, for taking the time and giving me the uh, the opportunity to tell it. I hope uh, I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, you know, <laughs> let's end with the website itself. Share with me how do we find you online? So it's just www.baghdadcountryclub.org. O-R-G. Baghdadcountryclub.org. Awesome. A bootlegger, veteran, a man of many worlds, many continents, and many achievements. But best of all, you're a man of a million stories. I love it. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll get together for a bit And you can get the taste inspired by this adventure. Search for James Thornett's latest project, Bucksy Bourbon and Rye. I'm Phil Briggs, raising a glass to you, and we'll talk again on the next episode of Eye on Veterans. All right, so that does it for this week's show. Thank you for listening. Now, we'd love to hear from you, so follow us on Twitter at IonVeterans, or you can reach me at PhilBriggsVet. I'm always down to get your hot takes and spicy memes, and I'd love to talk to you every week, so please like and subscribe. Hell, even give us a review of the show, because the comments and reviews really help us tailor the show to you. Again, I'm Phil Briggs, Navy veteran and reporter with ConnectingVets.com in Washington, D.C. And I look forward to talking to you again on another episode of CBS Audio's Eye on Veterans. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. 
It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.